community. It's filled with children as the protagonist, the collaborators. It's filled with educators as researchers, nurturers, advocates. But what about the caretaker? How do we view parents and guardians as partners in this process? What about community members? How do we fold in community members' voices? And how can we ensure they feel valued and recognized as an important piece of our family? The final piece that completes our tiny but mighty community. Welcome to NAPCAST, a podcast produced by Hilltop Children's Center in Seattle, Washington, on the traditional lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish tribe. I'm your co-host, Mike Brown, pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined always by my colleague, Nick Taronis, who pronouns are he, him as well. And this is episode seven, The Role of the Family. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCAST 25, 30 minute segments are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, <laughs> heck, even agree with us, but honestly, remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. You know, Mike, I'm trying to rack my brain and think about if I've heard something like this or not. I mean, we've talked about the role of an educator and the image of a child and how those influence one another. And for this concept that you brought for us to think about, I see that it's also shaped how we educators view families. What is our image of a family? How we shape our image of families is how we're going to expect and or anticipate the family's roles in our school communities. And honestly, when I think about the image of the family, my family pops into my mind first. I think that's kind of a natural motion of things. <laughs> Absolutely. And the roles that they've, um, and the roles that, you know, my family members have played in my life. Like I was telling you about, you know, my cousin and the interaction with her, her young child and how that got me thinking about how to, how in my practice I can move away from what we might be, you know, practicing whiteness by accident, uh, without thinking about it. Um, and then obviously all the families that I've had at school have come to mind, and there's been like hundreds of families. And as I'm thinking about this idea of the role of the family, I'm thinking about all the many experiences that I've had during my time as an educator with them, the good and the bad and the kind of neutral. And with that, these words come to mind. The role of the family is to advocate, to collaborate, to guide, and to advise educators. Um, and really to just be in partnership with them. Hmm. 
So there's a myriad of ways that the collaboration between caretaker, child, um, and educator can be seen. And I'm particularly interested in how do you communicate and share with caretakers really the challenges and, and responsibilities of educating their children, but as a community. And for this, you're referring caretakers as also sort of the equivalent of family members. Yeah, right? family members. You know, there's a there's a very large spectrum in mm-hmm. terms of what a caretaker looks like. So it could be guardian, it could be, you know, uh, grandparents. Um, it could take a, uh, take a whole village. You know. Yeah, and and I appreciate you calling that out because um, at first when when I was reading your questions that you wanted me to think about, I was like, caretaker, you know, to me, like sort of somebody in a hospice home, like, <laughs> yeah. like comes to mind or, um, or like, I guess the typical image of, of, of a babysitter or whatever, but I appreciate that we can use this word caretaker for, for to mean family. Um, cause you're, as you're right, it does take a, a, a village. Um, but as with the children that I'm with, to answer your question, uh, I aim to try to cultivate uh, and foster a rapport with families and not just a rapport, but a, an actual relationship that shifts from first being built on this blind trust, especially, you know, when I work with toddlers, like mm-hmm. this toddler is just coming out of infancy and their caretaker, legal guardian, family, their mom, their dad, their grandparent, whoever still holds them in this image of like this, this thing that needs to be really uh, taken care of. And there's that really strong attachment. So it's built on this blind trust and then it evolves into this actual trust. Once they get to, we really get to know uh, each other. And I feel that trust becomes mutual. Um, And I've learned that no matter what age of the child, they'll always be their family's baby. My mom, especially <laughs> last night, always reminded me that. She said, even though you're 36 years old now, you're still my baby. Absolutely. When my mom calls, she goes, hey, baby, how you doing? I'm like, All right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, my mom still calls me Nicholas. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Um, but I have to, you know, I have to go in knowing and being open to the fact that the families of children in my care might have a different idea of how to be with that child. And so I'm always reminding myself of a couple things. What's more important in a situation, my idea or the caretaker's idea. And what I do know is what we all want is what's best for the child mm-hmm. and their need and their experiences. Uh, these reminders play on each other and they, you know, they don't really have a particular order. Um, as caretakers of children, both family and educator, we know that we're going to bring, there's going to be inherent challenges that we face together. And I like to remind uh, caretakers that what works at school may not always translate back at home. Yet the silver lining behind that is the child is becoming more sophisticated at code switching, you know, being able to apply behaviors to different social contexts. I also like to emphasize to caretakers that it's a good reminder to myself that childhood isn't linear. It ebbs and flows. It has its zigs and zags. But really, I mean, that's just life, right? In general, general, yeah. There's no immediate, like, a whole lot of immediate outcomes for children or, like, that we should expect. Mm -hmm. Um, When when families do find out how long I've been working with toddlers, I do notice that they're a little more readily able to give me their blind trust. Because, I mean, when I do tell people out in public, 
I don't look like yeah. your typical like toddler educator. Right? Mm-hmm. I got one full sleeve of tattoos on one arm. I'm a male. Mm-hmm. Um, you look like you're 12. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I get that a lot. People are like, well, so did you start when you were 12? <laughs> you know, um, but it makes it easier for them to give me the blind trust when they know my experience. Um, and we have in my classroom and at, at Hilltop, we've, uh, you know, made it a consistent, consistent practice to make our values and approaches very transparent as well as make time to always communicate. And as with any relationship, you know, communication is the underlying factor to what makes or breaks a relationship. It is well known that one of the best investments caretakers, parents, guardians can make in a child's life is investing in high quality early childhood education. And the realities for many is that education has been traumatic. Mm -hmm. Education has fallen short. Um, You know, education has failed to protect our our BIPOC, Black, Indigenous people of color, um, our BIPOC families. So how can schools become a space of healing, uh, of high trust, so that families, specifically BIPOC families, can play a bigger role. Yeah. And I, I generally try to stay away from trying to frame our role as educators as being sort of a service industry, but it is. And I think it's really, uh, it's just practicing humanity. Oof. And that's how I think of, uh, real effective education is, is modeling and practicing humanity. So I think educators need to proactively ask their families and caretakers in their settings, what can they do for them? What are their needs? What are the caretakers' needs? Mm, How can I best support you? Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And I think this is especially true at this time that we're talking about and making a snapcast. I think this is especially true for black families. Uh, Doing something small like this, I think, can really start help dismantling uh, the systemic anti-black forms of education. Um, and we need to try to set up our class and school environments that adjust and adapt to the families and not set an expectation of where families of color are adapting to our learning cultures. You know, and I also want to throw in even the anti-Asian forms of education, because right now, Mm -hmm. you know, just by being in COVID right now, um, a lot of people are looking at our, our Asian communities and saying, due to the rhetoric of certain people in office, you know, they're they're casting blame and they're causing more heart, hurt, hurt, uh, hurt harm, <laughs> if I can speak properly this morning, hurt and harm mm-hmm. um, to them. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Thanks for throwing that out there. Um, and, you know, when when children hear those messages outside of our care at school, uh, it, it just becomes this reinforced mm. anti-Asian, anti-Black anti-Latinx education. Mm -hmm. Um, I also feel that schools need to have a transparent trajectory of their mission. They're transparent uh, in their vision and their values. And what makes it, that makes it clear where they, where they are with their practice and pedagogy, where they wish to go and how they could use the help and guidance of caretakers and families that they're partnering with. And it would be great to practice. It would be, great practice if this was revisited every couple uh, every couple years with families as sort of a assessment of the relevancy of values and practices because you know there's always you know different families coming in and out 
And I like how you always keep saying with families, in partnership mm-hmm. with, and not for, to, um, which I think a lot of the educational experiences my family has had growing up, it was, oh, we're going to do this for the child or to the child. So I appreciate that, mm-hmm. how you're framing that. Yeah, it should always, uh, yeah. I, 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 I believe that education is a partnership. And, and I think when we see it as a partnership, we're framing it that we're in this together and we have to find that communication and that compromise sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think lastly, what comes to mind is we educators need to be more proactive about advocating for childcare as a whole, really just bombarding legislators by writing them and advocating for what we need on our state level, participating in uh, council meetings you know, things of that nature, the things that I, <laughs> that I want to do, but I don't do when, you know, something I want to do more of. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do this, we need to seriously rope families in too and let them know, Hey, in this partnership together, this is how I'm going to make our voice. This is how I'm going to help our voices be heard. And I need you to help to, you know, to really amplify it. And we need to especially pull in families of color and caretakers of color and be strategic about how we can support them and being able to take a day off and, you know, offset expenses. Mm. Um, and then the other thing that I think we talked about, uh, educators to support BIPOC caretakers and families is to really like acknowledge that they're bringing a sense of trauma. Absolutely. Right. It's historical trauma that has been weaved into our systematic uh, uh, forms of oppression. Mm-hmm. You can you say something on that a little bit? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think there's, a, there's certain things that we we have to continue to grapple with. You know, I I even think about how how um, the the traumatic experience of, of police brutality. You know, and how mm-hmm. I've experienced that. Granted, I wasn't beat, but I remember just walking down the street um, one day. And I was trying to go to the DMV. So, you know, it was early in the morning and a police officer stopped me and I had to lay down on the ground, um, Superman style, and I was patted down and I was cuffed. So just little experience of that and even um, experience a little bit of homelessness. You know, that's not something that I, I used to say a lot, but that that's part of my family experience and just trying to grapple with some of those early experience on has has created a um, toxic stress with my family. It, it, it puts us on edge whenever we have to think about money or, or whenever one of us loses a job. So these are little things and experiences that I can't leave at the door and I bring with me in it's a little, you know, cloud and I'm trying to reframe that to to use the black cloud as a motivation and um not seen as so much of a negative, but but as a power, po- positive thing. So I'm reframing that. Um, but yeah, these are, are some of the things that we carry with us that isn't necessarily known or isn't necessarily asked on your enrollment sheet. Mm-hmm. So this is why it's so important when we're talking about working with families that you really, in a respectful you know way that you dig in and you understand their, their circumstance. Because it's more than just what's black and white on the paper. Yeah. And, you know, simply like acknowledging that families of color and especially black families bring a historical trauma doesn't mean that 
we want to be coddled and that black families need to be coddled because in that trauma that has been endured. And I was just reading again and listening to Cornell West this morning. And he was saying for all these 400 years that we've been in the United States, we have only preached love and we have look at us now. We are Mm -hmm. like, look how, look what we've been able to come out of. He's speaking about the black community. And, and I just found so much power in that. And I would like white educators to know that, yes, just keep it in the, at the forefront of your mind that families of color, children of color, are bringing a sense of historical trauma, but they don't need you to hold their hand and to call them. So is there anything else off the, I guess, just off the top of your head you're imagining or anything? I guess off the top of my head, what if there was more concerted effort to specifically recruit people of color in education? What if there were resources that made it possible for people of color to see it as a direct impact on their communities, to see themselves as a direct impact on in their communities and through education? Hmm. That's interesting because I was thinking about what if I had a magic wand, right? And I could wave it to to create or propose a federal childcare policy or funding stream. So I was thinking about this the other day and man, if I had a a chance to wave it, it would wave it straight to like a teacher prep program. You know, this industry is nearly 96% white in in FEMA identifying. And I imagine one day having a, a child, you know, a black child that will most likely statistically speaking will have a white educator. And in the years I've spent in this industry, I have yet to find one white educator that I wouldn't trust my child with. Hmm. So if I'm if I'm at waving that magic wand, let's provide free college tuition to to people of color who wants to go specifically into early childhood education or related fields such as social work. Mm-hmm. And you know, even in it's even if in ten years this program is a failure in terms of diversifying the field, you still have this beautiful outcome in that more immigrants, more refugees, more communities of color understand the importance of childcare. They understand the importance of free play, of less screen time, of human and child development. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but I like the idea of having a more informed society that recognizes and validates and values children. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. Well said, Mike. Um, yeah. That's giving me a lot to think about right now. So in episode five, we talked about the image of the child and how this view informs our classroom tactics Um, It's a perspective that has influenced what we talk about in episode six. And in that episode, um, we talked about the role of the educator. So, you know, please go check it out by visiting hilltopscc.com backslash institute backslash napcast. So how does this image of the child impact the role of the families in the community? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, like, as we've been talking about this, education, even for professions in our society, it's pretty low on the rung or it's like low rung. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yet I feel like a lot of educators come and bring to the table 
this top-down approach, okay. right? <laughs> like where where they are the experts, and we are, especially in in the early childhood field, where I, there's this like, yeah, this top-down approach of like we know we know child development more than 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 a, a family member or a caretaker does. But the caretaker is an expert on that particular child. And we have our own expertise. And I think what can be agreed on is sometimes experts get things wrong and that's okay. And that's where, you know, I mentioned earlier, the partnership comes in. And to a degree, children are reflections of their families, their home lives and the communities that they come from. And children do not come to our schools or enter our schools, our care, simply empty, ready to be filled with lessons and skills. They bring with them their families, their communities, the synthesized knowledge of their experiences that they've already had. And they come with the drive to make more connections and to really figure out this world that they're living in. In my younger teaching days, it was easy for me to merely assume that the child is a certain way because of the way their family treated them. <laughs> and to a degree that might be true, but it doesn't make up the whole story of the child and family. And, and if you walk into that mindset, I have come to find, then then you put yourself at a deficit of really getting to know um, a family authentically. Um, and also what came to mind was um, Yuri Bronfren, Bronfenbrenner, a child developmental theorist. And he kind of explains this with his ecological systems theory. And, and, you know, I would like people to sort of close their eyes and imagine this thing if you don't know what it is and really think about, children of color and, and caretakers of color and family families of color. So imagine this multi-layered sphere in the middle of that sphere is a child and the microsystems, the microsystems, the child's immediate family, the religious institutions that they might go to their neighbors, the people around them, uh, just their peers, their own age, the really like immediate and direct impacts. And then surrounding that microsystem is the mesosystem. And those systems have a reciprocal relationship with the microsystem and are larger variances of the child's family, school, religious institution, etc. And then beyond that mm -hmm. is the exosystem, which is your extended family, the um, government agencies that influence the meso and microsystems, uh, the school board, mass media, family members, workplaces. Um, and beyond that is the, mic the macro system, the big one which could be thought of the sort of attitudes and the ideologies of a culture in which a child is situated. So when we consider this and we're talking about education being anti-black and, and even more, uh, furthermore, like just anti people of color, mm. but especially anti-black, you start seeing how all these things compound down into the family and into the child and how all these systems that are, intangible in some ways, but have a pretty direct influence on, on the children coming into our care. And, you know, it's the image of the child is a casserole of factors <laughs> and like any good casserole, there's lots of layers to it. Hopefully lots of cheese. <laughs> we'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high quality preschool after school program and Professional Development Institute of Early Learning and Inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. 
For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. I think a lot of the time we try to run before we can crawl, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by this is that we try to do all these grand family engagement strategies without really doing a good job at having families, caretakers understand the importance of what the educators and children are actually doing at school. It's especially tough when you come from a culture like mine, where adults expect to see workshops and and worksheets and mathematical equations, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you provide families insight into what we're doing as a play-based center so that they can view education in a different way, be stewards of that at home? Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's, again, that's to one of our other many good conversations of decentralizing whiteness. And Mm -hmm. I think that the narrative of education and early childhood education has been rooted in something that is um, worksheet based, like there's tangible outcomes, right? But we know that that's not effective. We, I mean, it has its place and certainly it has its value. Yeah. Third grade. Yeah. (laughs) But in the grand scheme of things, it's not necessary. Um, it's, I've, it's, in fact, I've had it's something I've learned that I need to be able to speak to beyond the families in my classroom. I've had a lot of people ask, what do, or what can you teach a toddler? You yeah. know, there are only two, like, what do they learn? Well, and essentially they're asking what can anyone under five years old learn? And it's that kind of, it's a, it's kind of a valid question given the fact that ECE for a long time hasn't been viewed on the same playing field as other educational structures. Fortunately, though, there have been many developmental theorists and research educators and new technologies that do give us substantial reasoning behind the importance of play. So when I, you know, write a a story or something about something trivial that we might think is trivial, like Mm -hmm. kicking a ball, for example, um, I'll try to think about the many possibilities that this uh, and connections that this supports in a child's learning. We can name out a lot of obvious things that, you know, that kicking a ball supports, right? The ability to, you know, coordinate and kick your feet, all these physical factors, Uh um, being able to propel it forward and watch where the ball goes and all that. On a smaller level, though, kicking a ball actually helps, and catching a ball, helps build eye muscles. You know what eye Hmm. muscles are good for? Tracking. And And what... Track eye tracking is good for reading. So these are those foundational things. Like when we're talking about early literacy, yeah, that's a that's an early literacy kind of thing. Is kicking a ball because it's helping the eye muscles strengthen. So when the child finally puts it together that symbols have meaning, their eyes can adequately track words mm-hmm. on a sentence or in, you know in a sentence. And you know there there have been studies to show that uh, some um, some reading deficits are because of the lack of strength in the eyes. Um, generally, though, I justify play as just a human need. It's something that we're wired to do. You know, it's uh, I've always used the example, and I think I've said it before. Like, you wouldn't just I couldn't I wouldn't say, "Hey, Mike, here's some music theory. Here's sheet music, mm-hmm. and now I expect you to play the drums or the ukulele." Right? That'd You're be rich. Yeah. <laughs> You, you would actually need to like participate with that thing. And 
play is a way for humans to participate in the world and to figure out the, the different constructs that we have. And effective learning should be fun. And the natural drive that children have to play encourages that. Yeah, and I think we mentioned this earlier that play is an equity issue. Mm. And um, I just, I keep going back to my homegirl, Ijima Jordan, mm-hmm. who, who mentioned that. And if we're not giving, you know, specifically black and brown children more opportunities to play, to engage in play, which straightens their, strengthens their the eye tracking support systems, um, that is, those are structural and fundamental ways that we're perpetuating inequalities and inequities within the system. We right. don't even realize it. Yeah. And, you know, when you're saying that, I'm thinking of like, again, like the worksheet model and and, yeah. and even in third grade, like, yeah, just let, let children play yeah. like and, and figure out how you can develop a curriculum that is play based at, you know, beyond at early childhood education. Because when, you know, black and brown families are seeing this um, expectation that their child will be successful when they can do these worksheets, these mm-hmm. math problems. And they're just sort of reciprocating that vicious cycle of like of inequity in play. Yeah, I think this is the second time I mentioned Ijima. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> so, hey, 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 you know, I promise y'all, if y'all listening, she does not um, sponsor us. <laughs> but if you do want to go check her out, you know, she has a tremendous website, a blog, um, workshops. She's based out of LA. So definitely check her out. It's IG. I think she's going to kill me for already spelling her name wrong, but I J U M A A Jordan.com. Mm-hmm. And yes, like Mike said, she doesn't sponsor us, but she certainly inspires us. Exactly. Same thing with Zoom, like we said in episode one. Yeah. <laughs> anyways, we strive to create a culture where families are interconnected. Um, the relationships formed are reciprocal. Caretakers are not just activated, right? But that they feel supported to engage in this work at pickup, at drop-off, even when they're at home. For many of us, this role is different. You know, our parents might not have been involved. You know, when I say our parents, I mean, you're and I parents, you know, Mm -hmm. in our generation, our parents might not have been involved in our learning growing up. So what are we doing? What we are doing is essential to trying to break that cycle. We need to make a big impression on parents, amaze them, convince them that what we're doing, you know, as a play-based center is something extremely important for their children and for themselves. So with that in mind, how do we support caretakers to take these principles from school and then apply them in their daily interactions in their homes? Yeah, uh, a couple of years ago, I did see a video that kind of did this for families in in uh, developing communities around the world. Some here in the United States, mostly on reservations and with um, migrant families. And the aim was they told the fam uh, the families and caretakers that their aim was to just watch a family be with their child, and then they would link the science back in a very relatable way to what what the families were already doing. So I think it's really just um, empowering caretakers and families by giving them language, right, to what they're doing as beneficial with their child already. Uh, one clip that stood out in particular where a young mother um, gave her maybe one and a half year old a tub of soapy water and, and a sponge and some dishes that were manageable for the child to handle. And the child dumped and filled plastic cups, dropped utensils in and picked them out and marveled at why some of them floated back up and others didn't 
um, you know, figured out the properties of a sponge, all that stuff. Mm. And in her language, uh, a child developmental specialist then broke down um, how this was all great for the child and that the child was actually being a scientist and that they were experimenting with volume, weight, quantity, math, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that this kind of play supported at an age appropriate level, these concepts that we might consider quote unquote academic. Um, the mother was, <laughs> her eyes just lit up and was like, what? And just <laughs> laughed and, you know, said in her language, I was just trying to keep them busy to get my own dishes done. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. But in those moments, like we got to empower um, and let families know that what they're doing naturally is actually beneficial to um, the child's play. There's so much learning that can happen just in them. What we might think the mundane things, mm -hmm. but if you really dive deeper into it, um, like you said, you can find steam and, and STEM all over the place. Oh, yeah. I mean, a child, yeah, using a stick to like dig a hole in the ground. Mm. That's uh, some, you know, they're using a tool right there. That's engineering. Mm. That's like, you know, the, like how humans figured things out. Gotta love it. Mm -hmm. So the common challenge faced in our industry is bringing about a change in the ways that early childhood is viewed within our communities. And that involves increasing knowledge of the importance of the first 2,000 days of life from a brain science perspective, right? And mm -hmm. de-emphasizing academic learning in early childhood programs. When I mean academic learning, like we've been saying, the worksheets, the standardized testing. Mm -hmm. So all this is to say that is we need big structural changes. Mm -hmm. We also need soldiers on the ground, right? Any insight on, on, on how families, educators, youth advocates, and the community at large can act as a tool for change, Nick? Yeah, and you know, I've said this to you many times. I think you mentioned it on the other some other napcasts is we need more actual educators, especially educators of color, um, from the classrooms at the seats of policy and standard making. You know, and I think that they are the ones that can really reflect the needs of their communities that they work with. And also, and most importantly, there needs to be transparent, flexible uh flexibility in scripted curriculums. Um, they need to be as easily read, meaning they don't need to be the size of an encyclopedia, <laughs> right? It shouldn't be this like daunting, intimidating thing. Because even for educators and caretakers, they're, uh, educating young children should be fun. Uh, I also think that policymakers should actually listen to and model their expectations off of the programs that they're that are making play and project-based learning work in their communities. Um, Chicago Commons, great school out there in Chicago, Illinois, does a great job of that. Um, and I think schools should really strive for strong relationships with families. So in partnership, we can exercise grassroots walkouts that impact the economy, like we've kind of been seeing uh, with this whole COVID thing, and show the higher-ups the effects of our field. You know, it's, import it's importance and why we deserve uh, lasting investment. Everyone should check out um, a video called uh, A Day Without Child Care. That'll, that'll show you something. It'll open your eyes. Mm. As always, man, it's a pleasure to, to pick your brain, 
to agree, to disagree, to really dive deep into a, a lot of things that that might be on the minds of, of educators and people out there. So if you have a comment out there or a question or a thought or a rebuttal or a topic you love to see, um, heck, maybe you've even got a educator of color or a male educator who's got a story they'd like to tell. Reach out, let us know, and um, we'll, we'll, we'll get them on. Yeah. Appreciate it, Mike. Hey, couldn't do this without you, brother. Same. We have one shot at being kiddos before the bills, before the drama, before the responsibilities. Let's make sure we give them a joyous one. Until next time, y'all. Take care. <laughs>